Well, it's good to have you here in attendance with us this morning. It's a pleasure to be able to stand before you and to speak to you today. And whether you're a member here or whether you're visiting here with us, our visitors, you're our honored guest, we invite you to come back and to join us at any time. And as was already mentioned, I encourage you to stick around after services, introduce yourselves, let us get to know you. But members and visitors alike, we're thankful for your attendance, and I hope we all can be uplifted and God can be glorified for the time we spend here together this morning. One brief announcement, Brother Taylor already mentioned this, but I'm going to plug it one more time because I'm not going to be here next week, and then it's coming up the week after that. So this is my last chance to stand here on a Sunday morning and to tell you. Singing with the Spirit, our workshop, is coming up May 3rd through 5th. So I want to encourage you to be here for that. There's sessions Friday evening and Saturday morning. Uh, those will be beneficial for all of us to learn what it is we're doing when we sing, why we sing, hopefully to gain a greater appreciation of that aspect of our worship. Then Saturday evening, we'll have an area-wide singing, and if you can't make any of those class sessions, I encourage you, please, to make your plans here to be there for that, because it'll just be a, a good time when we all get together here and to sing songs of praise to the Lord. And then, of course, Sunday, as was mentioned, uh, we'll conclude that, and we'll top everything off with a, a fellowship meal together after morning services. So we're, we're looking forward to that weekend, and if you're a member here and you can think of uh, friends that you have in other area churches and you haven't invited them, do it. There's still time to. And if you're visiting here, we'd love to see you back here with us then. Of course, we realize that all over the world today, people are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's alive forevermore. And I think it's a wonderful thing when people are focusing their attention on that. But we do that every Sunday, don't we? Each and every first day of the week, we gather together, just as the earliest Christians did, because this is the Lord's Day, the day on which God raised Jesus from the dead. Each and every week when we gather around the Lord's table, and Daniel pointed this out a few minutes ago in his communion meditation, every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we not only proclaim that Jesus died, but that he rose and that one day he's coming again. You see, for the earliest Christians, every Sunday was Easter Sunday. And we attempt to follow along in their footsteps. We serve a risen Savior. And we look forward to that day when we'll be reunited with him. We'll stand with him in that glorious home that's been prepared not only for us, but for all those who love the Lord. I think about those wonderful words of the Apostle Paul written towards the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I'm now ready to be offered, or literally, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He knew his death was coming. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give to me at that day, and not to me only, but to all those who've loved his appearing. As much as I love this life, won't it be a great day 
when we can see him and when we can know him face to face and when we can be united with all of those people of God who've gone on before. We ought not look on that prospect with fear, but with anticipation. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I don't, I don't want to die. I love my life. And all of us should love our lives because life is a tremendous gift that God has given to us. Yet one day, I will die. You will too. It's inevitable. But we can face that inevitability, not with fear, but with hope because of Christ. We probably all wished, I won't say all, but most of us have probably wished on occasion that time could stand still. Now, I know that there are some people out there who, who relish new challenges. They like change. They want to be able to climb new mountains and such. Uh, I find those people weird. I, I hate change. It takes me a long time to get used to new things, and then once I get used to them, I kind of want them to just stay that way for a while because now I've adjusted. And in fact, that means that uh, I hope you people like me here because I'm not leaving anytime soon. That would be change, and I don't like that. But I think all of us feel that way at certain times. Wouldn't it be great if things could just keep going on the way they are now? Life's good. We're happy. I don't want to have the boat rocked in any way. But we know that that can't be. Change is inevitable. We can't stop it. Well, the chief priest and the Pharisees found that out in our text that was read just a few moments ago. After they had crucified Jesus, they come to Pilate and they say, hey, this guy claimed that he was going to rise from the dead, and if he does that, or if you know, his disciples make it seem like that happens, it's going to be worse than anything that happened before. So you need to help us make the tomb secure. And so Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. I've always thought that there's something kind of amusing in that. Can you see all of the heavenly host looking down and seeing these chief priests issuing orders and these Roman soldiers grunting as they push this stone here into place and putting the seal of the Roman Empire there and setting the guard in front of it? Can you imagine the God who created the sun and flung it into space? being thwarted by a big rock. Can you imagine God being stopped by a few flimsy Roman soldiers with swords and spears? And so we see in the next chapter that, behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That's what we expect. God speaks the word and instantly an angel descends, the earth shakes, the stone is rolled away, and those guards are paralyzed with fear like dead men. You see, the chief priest and the Pharisees were attempting to stop the inevitable. They were trying to seal up 
the Son of God. But there was no way they could ever hope to succeed in that. And we read about those efforts, and we know that they're useless, and, and so we smile at them. And yet, aren't we guilty sometimes of trying to do that very same thing? Of sealing up the risen Lord? We say to Jesus, well, it's all right, Lord, if you come in, but uh, don't touch anything. We just want you to sit in the corner over there and, you know, don't try to impact my life. Don't try to change me or the way I speak or the way I think or the way I act in any way. And, you know, we'll take you out on Sunday morning a bit and dust you off and then we'll put you back in your place. But we can't do that. It's impossible. We can't expect to really encounter the risen Lord and not have him impact our lives. Because the resurrection, in fact, changes everything. For one thing, the resurrection changes our view of God. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking that that seems like too bold a statement. After all, you believe in the resurrection, presumably, or you probably wouldn't be here this morning. At the least, it certainly changed the view of those first century followers of Jesus. If not what God was capable of exactly, then certainly what his plan was, what his intention was, what he was trying to accomplish in this world. You see, one message of the resurrection is that stones and seals and soldiers can't stop God. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing his purpose. All enemies of God, whether they're the forces of this earth or whether they're outside this earth, can't hope to stand up to him. God defeats all of them. In 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, where we'll spend a good bit of time later this morning, uh, death, Paul calls death an enemy, death itself has been defeated in the resurrection. And we believe that because the tomb was found empty. Jesus is alive. Now, it's just here, of course, that our skeptical friends here in our modern world will say, okay, come on, you Christians, you can't really believe in the resurrection, can you? I mean, it might have been one thing for those ignorant and backward first century peoples to believe in something like that. But here in our 21st century, we know that dead people don't rise up from the grave. I have news for you. 2,000 years ago, people knew that dead people didn't get up out of their graves. This is common knowledge. This isn't something that we just discovered in modern times. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's on the Areopagus in the city of Athens, and he's addressing all of these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, and he reaches the climax of his sermon, and he says that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And you remember the response? They laugh him out of there. That's ludicrous. Who ever heard of a dead man being raised up to life? And that's precisely the point. This sort of thing was not likely to be invented because no one believed in anything like this. It's true there were some Jews, not all Jews, but some Jews who believed in a general resurrection at the end of time. That's what Martha's referring to in John chapter 11 when Jesus talks about Lazarus living again. Well, I know he will at the end, at the resurrection. 
But you see, no one, Jew or Gentile, ever heard of, ever thought of, ever even entertained this idea of God raising someone here in the middle of history. We're not talking about someone merely being resuscitated, that is, new life being breathed into an old body. We're talking here instead about someone given new life in a recognizable and yet somehow strangely different body. This was the same thing, but it was something different, too. That's a novel belief, and we have to then account for it somehow. I wasn't there when Jesus rose from the dead, but I believe that it occurred. And there are a lot of reasons that we could give to believe that, but I want to give you just two here briefly this morning. First of all, I believe in the resurrection because eyewitnesses have told me that it was true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 3, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. It's not just Paul. I believe it because the apostle John writes, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. In other words, John says, I want to tell you about Jesus, what we saw, what we heard, what we experienced ourselves. We even reached out and touched him. This same John writes in his gospel, in the prologue, chapter 1, verse number 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. At the end of his gospel, chapter 21, verse 24, he says, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So in other words, John says in his gospel where he writes about the resurrection and then in that first letter, he saw Jesus himself. He knows these things are true. We can trust his eyewitness testimony. So I believe it because the people who saw it happen and saw him alive passed it on. Now, of course, some people will say, well, that's not scientific. You're just relying on people's testimony. I've got news for you. All history is based on testimony. History is not something that's like a hard science. It's not reproducible in a laboratory. You can't subject history to experiments. It happens one time and only one time. So we're dependent on testimony to know anything about history, and we shouldn't discount that just because it's a unique event. And part of the point here is they knew that this was unusual. None of them were expecting it. None of them were looking for it. That's why all the disciples were in despair. Their hopes were crushed after Jesus' death. So we have to hear this strange testimony on its own merits. Perhaps more importantly than that, it's related to it, but the result of that testimony 
I believe in the resurrection because our world is greatly different since Jesus lives. Here again in 1 Corinthians 15, where we're going to spend a good bit of time this morning. In verse 14, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Do you realize that if Jesus had not been raised, that there's absolutely no reason for us to be here this morning? There's a cartoon I saw years ago, and I tried to find it online to put the slide up here, and I couldn't. But it's of two Roman soldiers, and they're standing there in front of the empty tomb. The stone's been rolled away, and one of them looks really nervous because, of course, they failed in their job. And the other guy's looking all nonchalant. He shrugs, and he's the one that's speaking, and the caption says, don't worry about it. A hundred years from now, nobody will remember any of this. But that's not true. A hundred years passed, and Everyone still remembered this. People gathered to remember. And here, 2,000 years later, we have gathered to remember. And if the Lord tarries another 2,000 years, his people will still gather to remember. You know, there were a lot of messianic movements that flourished in Palestine around the time of Jesus' life, in the century or two before and after him. And when their would-be messiahs inevitably died, do you know what happened to those movements? They died too. They fizzled because all of those followers moved on. They realized, no, we were wrong. This guy's not the one we were looking for. Something is different about Christianity compared to those other movements. Jesus Christ is alive. And you don't easily forget something like that. Our world is different because Christ lives. That manifests itself in a couple of different ways, multiple ways actually, but just a couple I want to talk about in the rest of our time today. The resurrection changes our view of death. In the beginning, death was not part of God's good creation. It entered the world as a consequence of sin. But ever since death came into the world, humanity has grappled with it, what death means and what, if anything, lies beyond it. Now, the naturalist will tell us that there is nothing beyond it, that dead is dead, and once you breathe your last breath here, you cease to exist. But that idea, most people can't sustain it. And so we grapple about trying to find other answers. And if you go, for example, go to the religion section at Barnes & Noble or another large bookstore like that, you'll see a, a lot of people trying to find answers to this question today. It seems a lot of them come to us from Eastern religions. It's increasingly popular for people to believe in reincarnation. You'll find books about that. I I think even of a a song, this is from a few decades ago. Some of you will remember this one, though, uh, from The Highwayman. Uh, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings. You know, the song is all about, I I was a highwayman, I was a sailor, I was a dam builder, and I'll be back again and again and again and again. Or if not that, it seems that some people believe in some sort of weird, strange, new agey type thing where at death we're absorbed into the spirit of the universe and I'm here present in the wind and the rain, etc. And so I'm one with 
all of the cosmos in some sort of mystical sense. Well, against that background, against us searching for answers, Scripture declares that in the resurrection of Christ, death was defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, 13, Paul says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we are in that same hopeless and helpless state as everyone else in this world, groping out into the darkness, grasping blindly, vainly at some shreds of hope. But instead, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As Christians, we believe that. In Christ, all of us will be made alive. But unfortunately, even here, I think for a lot of us, compared to what Scripture teaches and compared to what professing Christians believed in for centuries, over the last couple of centuries, our thinking has become a little bit muddled and confused here in this area. When we read about Christ making us all alive, we tend to think of that ultimately as some sort of disembodied existence as pure spirit in heaven. And we think of that as our eternal destination. That's our home. That's where we're going. And in fact, some of our songs that we sing actually sort of reinforce those beliefs. That's actually not what Scripture teaches. That's not what Paul teaches in this chapter. It has more in common with Plato than it does with what we read about in the Bible. It's true that after death, Christians do pass into some sort of state of rest, a state of blissful existence with God. Daniel alluded to this in the passages he read from the cross. Jesus says to the thief who's executed with him there today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's just one example of this. But as we read through the New Testament, what we discover is that's, that's just an intermediate state. Ultimately, something even greater than that awaits God's people. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we won't all die. Jesus might come back while we're alive. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul tells us here is that, properly speaking, resurrection isn't about life after death. As N.T. Wright has put it over and over again, resurrection is life after life after death. In Jesus, the destiny that all of us as Christians have is bodily resurrection. That's what Paul makes clear here. We will be remade just like Jesus was in a body that is recognizable but is in some strange way different. You think about Jesus' body after the resurrection. The disciples knew him. He conversed with them. He even ate fish. But he also did things like pass through locked doors. It's different. It's changed. It's incorruptible and imperishable. C.S. Lewis tried to explain this by saying that he's more physical than us, that he's more real, more substantial, that he's made of greater and different stuff. Now, this is one of those areas where I wish I could understand everything that the Bible says about this, and I'm telling you that I can't. We might wonder why in eternity do we need bodies, even imperishable, incorruptible bodies. And this is something we can only glimpse, but I think we do have brief glimpses of it in Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, which is another key passage about resurrection, Paul says that we're eagerly awaiting the redemption of our bodies. There's that hope again. But in that same context, he says in verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says that all of creation has been yearning for redemption. It's been groaning like in childbirth. Something new is trying to come into existence. And he says that it's going to be a glory like that of God's people. We might think of passages too, like Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. We have the picture here of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and sometimes we speak of this as heaven. I've even talked about this as heaven before. And if we just mean the place where God dwells, in that sense, it's not wrong. But I'd caution you here, if you read these two chapters, John actually speaks in Revelation 21 and verse number 1 of a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In fact, the imagery here, as we read down, is of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven to earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, I recognize that Revelation is written in apocalyptic imagery. We can't take everything here literally. But the image has to mean something. And the image is of God coming to be with his people, of a new heaven and a new earth becoming one here. This is an image of eternal rest, yes, but it's not of us flying away into some new dimension to be with God. It's the completion of the whole story of Scripture. Just as God walked with Adam in the garden, just as God pitched his tent in the wilderness with his people, God comes to dwell with his people here in the end. That relationship broken by sin is restored. The creation that was marred by sin has been renewed. It's been healed. That's not the way we usually think about eternal life. And I know I'm maybe giving us some new things to chew on and we're swimming in some pretty deep waters here. And as I said, I can't even begin to explain all of this. But what I think we can say, it seems that just as in the resurrection we will have imperishable, incorruptible bodies that have some continuity with our old ones, but discontinuity too. They're kind of the same, but they're something new and strange altogether. Well, so too, whatever eternity is like, in some sense, it will have some continuity and some discontinuity with the current creation. God is redeeming the world. Recognizing this, finally, the resurrection should change our view of life. We go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and you notice how Paul closes out this masterful chapter on the resurrection. He says in verse 58, Therefore, in light of all this, he said about Christ being raised and how will be raised. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain." The emphasis here, as Paul brings this chapter to a close, isn't on our future hope, even though if in Christ we have hope in this life only, as he says, we're of all people most to be pitied. But if it weren't for the resurrection on the one hand, we might as well live like we want, just like the rest of the world, if this life is all there is. He says that back in verse 32, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But on the other hand, the way we often think about and talk about the resurrection, we would wind up this chapter differently. We'd say something like, therefore, don't worry about this world too much because one day you're going to leave this old world behind and you're going to go and you're going to be with God. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that our future hope motivates us to have a present hope to act here in this world in the here and now. Resurrection is not about God taking us out of this world. It's about God filling this world with his presence and with his power. Jesus is risen from the dead. Nothing can stop God. And so he asks us as citizens of his kingdom to help him build it, to work with him as partners to call others to join it, yes, that's part of what we do, but also through making this world better in the here and now, just as Jesus did by helping others, by aiding the sick, 
by looking out for those who are hopeless and despairing, the, the whole downtrodden, fallen world. That's not a distraction from our mission of saving souls. That is an integral part of our mission. You see, in Jesus and in the church, we have a foretaste of God's new creation. When we become Christians, when we're baptized, God recreates us. We have a foretaste of what God's promised, and that is making all things new. And so he asks us to become his co-workers in that mission, an outpost of his eternal kingdom, knowing that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. You see, you can't stop God. Not with soldiers, not with seals, not with stones. You can't stop what God's trying to do in this world because God will conquer. And ultimately, as Paul says there in verse number 57, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ and we'll either be on his winning side or we won't. That's the message of the resurrection. That God now reigns through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. God is in control of this world, and he asks us to join him and to become citizens of his kingdom and to take part in his work of embodying what that eternal kingdom is like in the here and now, a colony of heaven, with the promise that he's preparing for us something much better, a new world, a greater world, a better world. He offers his invitation this morning. Perhaps you're here and you've never become a Christian. You've never made Jesus the Lord of all the universe, the Lord of your life. And so he invites you this morning, don't let this moment escape. Don't let it pass you by. Put your faith in him. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried with him in baptism. Have your sins washed away and be made a new creation and join with God in that work of building for the kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian. Know that that same power that raised Jesus, the same power that cleansed you from sin and baptism is the same power that continues to cleanse you just as long as you're penitent. But whatever your situation is, know this, that that same Jesus who was raised from the dead, when he comes again, will come as the judge of all the earth. We need to make sure that we're ready to meet him. If you're not and you need to make changes, won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?